Hello and welcome to Season 4. It's a podcast that seeks to encourage and inspire you on your journey. Well, it's lovely for you to join us now with this next interview with the Reverend Dr. Ash Barker who has a very, very eclectic background. And you'll notice from his accent where uh, he's not a Brit, but he is certainly been anglicized. Um, but he's a man who does things very differently. He is intentional of community with community. He is passionate in living out his faith in a very practical way, not in this esoteric way, but, you know, meeting people's needs. And um, we get to share or we get to hear some of his story from when he was doing things in the Far East, but also how he's done it with his family and, you know, the the challenges that that has posed and um, the different communities he's part of as well. Really fascinating, highly inspirational. So let's go straight into it now. Well, we are now with my next guest, and it is it's with great delight and surprise, and not because you know I was, wasn't going to chat with this person, but more to the point is all these people talk keep talking about this this random bloke to me anyway. I'm going, what do you mean you know that person? And <laughs> I thought I'd better have a chat with him and really find out. Um, we're with the Reverend Doctor Ash Barker, and um, just for my listeners. Um, Ash is someone who I came across. Um, I, I work with a church up in Birmingham and I, I was looking for some spaces and places for this church to hang out. And I was meeting with different church leaders in the in the city and they said, oh yeah, yeah, you should talk to Ash. I was like, okay, it's not a word. It's not a name, but <laughs> maybe, short, maybe short for Ashley. We'll go with that. And I met with Ash. Uh, well, probably it was definitely pre- no, it was actually in the middle of pandemic, and um, and you you basically went on to share a bit more about who you are and what you do. We have mutual friends; we're, we're both friends with, with with Mike Royal, and you used to do church in a year, and you used to have a llama, and it was like, well, clearly I'm going to be friends with this bloke because he's awesome. <laughs> um, so here, here we are. Which is which is great, and then when Sally Mann mentioned you, it was like well, we have to talk because the red letter Christians thing, and it's like, and then Helen Lawson, of course, who who for, for listeners we are a big fan of who she is and, and what she what she does, etc. So you should tell me more about you, because clearly I do not know enough. <laughs> yeah, I'm happy to start wherever you wherever you think might be interesting. You might be able to tell from my accent I'm from Melbourne, Australia, uh, but I do live in the city of Birmingham, lived here since 2014. Growing up in Dingley, which is in Melbourne, second section in Springvale, where we relocated to work mainly among refugees in that neighbourhood in Melbourne, started Urban Neighbours of Hope as part of that, and then, uh, then relocated to... Clontoy in 2002 uh, and that was a big part of our lives uh, yeah. Uh, just yeah it was it was challenging I nearly died a few times typhoid typhus dengue fever four times I had the whole thing oh my and, uh, and then yeah and then inner city Birmingham Winston Green in Leslie Newbigin's old parish 
um, who wow. lives with a massive kind of um, influence on my life. He's one of the great mission theologians of the 20th century. And he actually wrote some of the formative material for me here in Winston Green. Wow. Gospel and Society, Foolishness to the Greeks, The Open Secret. He was writing those here. I'm now a URC minister here, uh, as Leslie was. And we've taken an old uh, Lodge Road, United Reformed Church building, and um, it was derelict, essentially, and we've turned that around wow. to work with the community again. Uh, and uh, and I, I run Seedbeds, which is really our dream, uh, second half of life dream, really, to invest in the next generation of urban and community leaders. And we do master's programs and emerging leaders programs. I work in Myanmar and Ukraine, wow. other places to try and... Um, yeah, I just believe every local community should flourish in God's love and shalom, but most don't get that opportunity. And so if we can identify leaders and work with them from within these mm. communities, that kind of change from within. So I don't know which bit you want to talk about. but My but, word. Uh, I mean, but, it's... Uh, well, I mean, it's extraordinary. What, you know, from... I mean, you say, as you can tell, from, I'm from Melbourne. I have no idea whether or not you... I'm sure it's the same when you're in Australia, you all have different accents. Well, actually, the thing is about Australia, it's not that old as a kind of uh, since the pioneers and Europeans settled. So we don't, uh, you can tell some accents, but not always. Mm. Uh, and actually, there's, um, it doesn't have the class structure here in the same way uh, as it does here in the same way. So you can talk to a rough and ready guy from Sydney who can sound like a rough and ready guy from northern Queensland and you won't know which one's the millionaire running a business from the posh background. Um, it, it, the accents don't give people away in the same way they do here, actually. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. And I love the accents here. Yeah, you can go half a mile down the road and there's a different accent. It's just incredible. Oh, um, gosh. I mean, I, I know because I work in Walsall uh, uh, with, um, uh, with a whole bunch of folk there. And they'll say, oh, yeah, the, the people in the black country, we talk very different to those up in Birmingham probably been more shocking is the class kind of uh, classism that's here that's often associated with accents and even yeah um, people changing their accents so that they um, you know can disguise what class they're from um, and others kind of wearing it a badge of honor but um, but but paying a price for that as well so I, I do find it fascinating accents and class and culture mm. Theology, all those things are well I mean technically I'm a missiologist that's what my PhD is in it's what my writings and work has, has always been in so those connections between being culture and theology and practice are really interesting to me ah uh, so I mean it makes and so as a result of that uh, this is why you did seedbeds this is I can see why you're mates with Mike I mean, because I mean, we're very good mates. We have a we're the Black Eagle Pub around the corner, and uh, we yeah. You know, my my wife said, "Where are you going on? I'm off, off for a meeting with the bishop." And, uh, <laughs> and uh, that's so good. That's so good. So um, today's or this week's uh, devotion it talks about um, perspective and our relationship with wealth and God meeting our needs. Um, Talk to me a wee bit more about your relationship with why you started to get involved in mission and to live differently, and then why you then got involved with like red letter Christians and all of that sort of stuff. Because I think 
people have they have to start somewhere and it always starts and it's fascinating you've got you've got this thing called seed beds with small small beginnings always lead to amazing stuff you know it's a mustard seed basically isn't it tell us about what were the mustard seed moments for you uh i think a significant one for me was um hearing tony campolo speak you know the founder of the red letter christian movement in the late 80s and uh and I'd been a Christian for a while, coming out of the charismatic movement. Actually, the church, I grew up in an independent kind of evangelical church and then yeah, um, at a charismatic church, which actually where the, um, a lot of the kind of signs and wonders and things that were kind of happening um, were, were happening out of the church I grew up in, yeah. in Dingley. And we went across to this charismatic convention in, in Adelaide. And I, you know, I thought this would be fantastic, the Bible college, um, the Table College where I ended up going was there. Um, but Tony Campolo was the person who just, he's preaching around the centrality of Jesus. And I still remember some of his stories and jokes. And um, But it was this sense that after what Jesus has done for you, mm-hmm. will you do anything for me? Uh, and, and I stood up willing to go anywhere for the cause of Christ and but I really felt convicted to go anywhere. And um, if this was real, if God was real, then I wanted to throw my whole life into seeing seeing God's kingdom come. And the way Campolo kind of described it, it wasn't in a pie in the sky when you die. It was this tangible sense of God's will being done on earth as in heaven. And that just caught my imagination. And um, little did I know, six months later, I met a young woman. Uh, so I was about um, 19, 18, 19 then. Uh, who also went to the same convention. Uh, um, she was also in living in Melbourne, and uh, and we it was um, yeah, it was love at first sight and all that. And she she also stood up. She thought she was going to go to Haiti. I thought I was going to China. Uh, we're both at Bible college preparing for for the for those kinds of vocations, and got married as twenty year olds. Wow. And uh, and actually, uh, the advice we got from groups like CMS and others. You know, there's lots of people coming from different languages and barrier, you know, and cultures here. Uh, why don't you learn if you have something to give? You know, which which was good advice. We relocated into Springvale together, uh, and it was a uh, yeah, uh, working with young people coming out of prisons, trying to prevent young people into prisons. But the mustard seed for me was that sense of call that uh, whatever it takes, whatever it takes to see God's kingdom come and to surrender your life fully so the, the compassion of God can th- flow through us. And that surrender has been a constant refrain in my life. And uh, whether it be Springvale or Bangkok or now in Birmingham, those um, that, that, that sense of um, it's worth it to, to give your life for Christ is, um, has, has never left me. That I'm always interested when people follow a call. I remember when I was 14, I was at Spring Harvest, and some Canadian bloke, wouldn't know for Larry who he is now, stood up and said, look, do you want to get filled with the spirit? I was 14. All right. And I stood up and I was like, you know what, God, these, these, my, my family, my friends, the people I knew in my church, there was something that was capturing them. And there was a desire for this. And I had this encounter of, of being filled or encounter of God or whatever words it was. And I remember that moment that happened. It was like, God, yes i really want to do this and i and and the things that came through my mind was um 
And it was, I think it was a projection on myself rather than what reality was, which was, uh, I'm go- I want to be like, I think God was saying, I want you to be like one of those people on the platform, be an inspiration to others. And I thought that that what, what it was. But in that culture, superstar Christianity was a thing. And as I've grown and moved in my pilgrimage, I've realized that that wasn't a thing. In actual fact, my platform was actually just being an influence to a positive influence into those around me, you know, and something which, of course, we we both agree on uh, and um, is this we've moved beyond. We haven't stayed there from uh, um, proclamation to application. So proclamation, you know, sharing the gospel and, you know, and spreading the good news and Jesus is the answer to actually to actually um, a friend, Peter, Peter Farmer, who's been on on this. Um, he and I were talking about this last week about our faith has to move from from values to vision to mission. And our values have to come from essentially it's the fruit of the spirit, which more or less is essentially kindness and, uh, uh, and joy. And then the the vision, how that applies is through the Sermon on the Mount. But then our application, which is our mission, is Luke 4, which essentially is meeting people, helping people, serving and supporting people. What was that moment for you when you realized, I suspect, that it was moved away from saying the prayer to, to actually just loving people, irrespective of the outcome? What was that moment? Yeah, I, I mean, it, it's a it's a circular kind of motion for me. That, mm. that you keep returning to some of these things. Actually, I, I don't think don't think it's linear. I don't think it's this and this and this. I think yeah, like it's it, good. Even, even that description of the Luke four passage. Actually, you know, you realise you need the Holy Spirit and you need you know you yeah. need prayer and those mystical kind of experiences to help you cope. Well, um, but. Uh, but, but, but I think two miracles emerge very quickly. The first miracle is actually God can use us to see change in people's lives. And mm. uh, and the good news of the gospel is the good news of the kingdom. I mean, it is that change is on its way, that's breaking through, and it can break through in people's lives, in community lives, in, play, in the lives of places. Um, but for me, it is much more personal and much more political and much more practical than than that that you can't isolate in individual souls from people's bodies you take a soul out of a body and, and you've got a corpse yeah take the um the body out of a soul and, and you've got a you know you've got a ghost you know? yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, god the, the reason jesus was resurrected from the dead is that it was a physical res- matter matters and uh and so that's been a, a lesson for me all the way through but but God can change matters. God can change situations and circumstances. Has been an important part of my life. Um, that hope is very real. But there's also a second kind of miracle, and that is people don't change. Circumstances don't change the way you hope, and actually we change. And the second miracle is that um, even when close people to us die and that, that's happened numerous times for us over the years people you love and care for and pray for and and that they don't change and in fact you know um horrible things you know keep happening yeah um my 18 year old foster son uh, for example we took him on at 11 years old in springvale and 
he was a very cute kind of young kid. His grandparents couldn't look after him anymore. He hadn't been going to school. We'd take him on, and we did. But, um, you know, he got a young one pregnant when he was, like, 14. Yeah. Uh, so we became foster grandparents, you know. Wow. Yeah. Um, and then his life uh, between um, having a kind of uh, mental kind of breakdown and uh, drug use and intellectual disability, all those things kind of swirled around and pushed him from pillar to post and um, and he became quite violent and tried to smash her windows in and grabbed, thought his daughter was trying to kill him even though she was a, you know, six months old. And, and actually he, he died as an 18-year-old. Wow. I'm so sorry. Of a, of a drug use. And I still remember the film funeral and you, you speak to the body and I still remember saying you didn't change the way I wanted you to, mate. You know, we loved you as our own son. But I'm a different person. You showed me the way the world really is. You took me to the edge and the margins, to places of powerlessness. And I'm different because uh, God loved you through me. And yeah. uh, I'll do all I can in my life to, to prevent this happening in others. And so my calling in lots of ways was a call within a call. It's, it is, it is the, the teachings of Jesus. It is the you know the dynamics of, of the spirit mm. it is coming home to the father it's it, it, but it's at different times and in different seasons you have uh you have to cling on to different things from god i think and and you get used in different ways at different times yeah i hear that i hear that i i'm so sorry to hear of his loss i i i know what suicide looks like you know uh having having seen it with with my brother-in-law mm. and do you know what i know it sounds horrific but sometimes people they will have they they will legitimize their reason mm. and you can understand their pain but it does come to a place of them not understanding that there is they're loved and adored irrespective and that yeah. they are accepted and and part of the challenge that i've had as a result of my brother-in-law passing on is, is being um, uh, ridiculously intentional to be embracing to everyone, yeah. ir irrespective of who they are, where they're from, because it, and, and I don't know about you. I mean, during the pandemic, it's it, and I, and I've, and I've mentioned it, but I, I, and I intentionally mention it time and time again, there are things that were triggered in my life that you go, I need to sort this out because this is the, the outcomes in it, that if I carry on this trajectory, something that was really interesting, and I think this is fascinating, and I am going to say it, pro probably not do it in, in, in the right way. Um, my wife, who is, is a constant inspiration to me, she was listening to a person who was essentially saying, um, often we are living a dream. We're living out what we think is something from our past and we're living it out and we're projecting through a dream, which basically means we are sleepwalking. And in a, when we're in our present moment, we are asleep because we're actually living the dream from and we're not present. But when we wake up to realize that in actual fact that we are fully loved, fully accepted, uh, it's incredibly liberating irrespective of the things that have happened to us. How do you, because you see, you, you, you approach, uh, you approach life, 
relationships, evidently, in a very different way to others. What has been a constant inspiration to you to live in the present, but also to communicate living in the present with others in that presentness with God? Yeah, I found that a huge challenge. And if, even though you might think you're in Islam or in a city, you can get caught in your own thoughts. You can get caught in your own dreaming. And uh, and and so things like, you know, I, I'm one of those guys that gets up really early in the morning to pray and prepare for my day. So I can be awake for those moments when I need to be awake and, and aware and responsive. There's... um. The, in, in Greek, New Testament Greek, there's uh, there's two words for time. There's kairos time and there's chronos time. Chronos is the kind of ordered time when you can chronology become that word. But kairos is those kind of opportune divine moments to respond and uh, trying to to be prepared um, for those day for those moments to respond is really important. I think so. Preparing well for my day is part of what I do. I think the other thing is that. Um, I think when we're in the flow of our gifts and skills and strengths, it is easier to kind of you have the energy to stay awake. I think over times where I've had to work against my own strengths, ability to do things that are not work, it, it isn't just that my own gifts aren't being used. It's actually it, it takes so much energy and to, that I can... Uh, it's easier just to be in your head. It's easier not to be awake and aware. It's easier just to try to be a zombie. Yes. And uh, that's certainly... Um, be the temptation for me yeah so so i think the other thing i think i've always had mentors uh, um, i'm part of the community of Aiden and hilda um since i've been here and so monthly meeting with mentor and supervision all a safe place to to um to check in has been a, a important discipline for me because you can easily drift and all it takes is two or three bad decisions and suddenly you're off on a different path. Oh, yeah. And so, yeah, so having, having, having that kind of support is important to me as well. That's so refreshing to hear that. Uh, I, I know we, we are both, um, we both are paid by to work in the Christian community, but it's, it's, I think it's it's really helpful for us to basically confess that we're vulnerable, yeah. uh, and we need we need people to support and care for us. So, um, what do you do? Um, so, obviously, the, today's devotion we, we talked about our relationship with money, and our relationship actually is not about money, but it's about our needs. And sometimes we have to. It's all about uh, are we the answer to the question, or is God the answer to the question? Uh, and it shifts our focus on on uh, it's been, I suppose you know where are we wealthy? Where you know who, who is our wealth provider? Um, how do you? So, so let's. And this is the strange thing when you worked with those folk in the slums, and their their prospects may not be that great. All right. That's just, you know, that's just because of what it is. You know, you, you, how do you, how do you help them to realize the wealth that they have with what they can gain? Sometimes it's not stuff that you own, but actually it's in themselves. How do you deposit that? And then it's manifested. It is a good question. And it's, it's one thing, uh, 
a, you know, a white male from Australia with all the kind of resources I come with telling someone they should really trust God. It's a different kind of thing for people who don't have the connections that I have, don't have the uh, the advantages and privileges that I have had. So, uh, but what you can do is value people and work with what people have. Um, Lao Sue from the sixth century said, go to the people, live with them, learn from them, love them. Start with what they know, build with what they have. But with the best leaders, when the work is done, the task accomplished, people will say, we've done it ourselves. I want to mm. add with of the Lord. But, uh, but that's been our approach. How can, how can we work with what people have? And uh, so one of my neighbours in, in Klontoy, her name was Pooh, P-O-O, and she was a brilliant cook. We, we, we loved her to be it. She was such a warm kind of person for us and our family. She'd sell her food um, really just out from her house and essentially people would come and, for, you know, a quid, you'd get a, a great kind of meal. But the price of rice went through the roof uh, as subsidies got taken off by the government. And so a huge kind of desperate need. Um, and she started getting into... Um, yeah, in, into debt. And when you get into debt in a place like Contour, you get into debt to some really dangerous kind of characters. Yeah. So she was desperate. And could you kind of give me a job somewhere or could you get some money or what can we do? Yeah. And Anne said to her, well, you know what? You're, you're such a great cook. Maybe you could teach people how to cook. Uh, could you start a cooking school? We'd help you and work with you. And she said no a few times. But eventually Ange kind of said, no, what you have is really valuable, what you've got. Um, and she tried it with a few of our friends that came from Australia just to get started. And she was a natural. She'd take people to the local markets. The markets in Thailand are crazy. I mean, there's yeah. cockroaches for sale and ants and, uh, you know, the frogs with the stomachs cut open, the heart still beating, and you can eat them all. Oh. Um, and then she'd kind of take them back to her house. And she was just a lovely way about helping people in a very short period of time. Cooked a cooking school became the number one thing to do on TripAdvisor in Thailand, in Bangkok. And uh, number two was the Grand Palace. Uh, and then Wait, she, say the, that again. Uh, so it, it became the number one thing for TripAdvisor. Yeah, in Bangkok. Yeah, uh, and uh, and then her her cookbook got going, and of course, Ange is brilliant with the titles for her books. The name of the book was Cooking with Poo, and uh, and it it um. Uh, it, it was fantastic what she was able to, able to do with that. Uh, it won the Frankfurt Book Fair Award for the oddest book title of the year. <laughs> uh, and then Jamie Oliver picked it up, Jonathan Ross, comedians all around the world picked it up. Actually, if, if you Google Cooking with Poo, uh, Jamie Oliver, uh, you'll see, you'll see uh, yeah, this um, apron that says, I cooked with poo and I liked it, and, and Jamie Oliver's kind of there. So, yeah, so, so I think they're the kind of thing you do. You, you try and look for the gifts and strengths and passions and dreams that people have and you try and work it so that they have an opportunity to express it and we use our gifts and talents to, to do that. Oh, I love that. I love that. I love that. I, um, I noticed that you're wearing a little crucifix, which I've just started yeah. doing. Um, we had, um, yeah, I, I've got one which I made... And it's important that I mention this. Uh, you can see it. I made it uh, just um, oh, probably just after Easter. Before Easter, we had the community of St. Anselm um, with us. 
And it's essentially it's a year out for people who are under 30 to live a monastic life. Yeah. And um, they, they, they go through these rhythms, uh, et cetera. And um, uh, part of it is um, they, they do have four times of prayer and then they have a time of, um, the hilarious one was, uh, was a time of confession. So I, I wasn't to come to confession, but it's a time of peace. So before they took the breaking of the bread, they'd sit in a circle and then they would um, essentially just say, look, if I want to, if you've offended me or if I've offended you, I'm just going to tap you on the shoulder and we're going to go next door. And, and we're just going to just basically make peace, etc. A whole bunch of them came around to our house. And um, I, I don't know about you, but it was, it was a moment when it was a bit like um, the, the, the distance between heaven and earth was thinner. Yes. You know? And I just thought, do you know, and they all wore these little crucifixes. And I'm a, I'm a very, very uh, non-Anglican, very low church sort of person. And um, so I made this little cross out of where I was going to do one that was connected to some sort of saint. I thought, no, I'm, I'm just not that guy. And I made this little cross that was made out of um, Hawthorne because I passed, I passed a Hawthorne bush. And, I, and then I, I put a couple of um, holes in it just to show where jesus had died but he's not there um and and so um the reason i only mentioned that because you see you tell me did you often wear that cross how long how often have you been wearing that cross and then how did that then reveal its how does how does your faith reveal itself with your neighbors or what, let's say when you were talking about someone like 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 the lady her first name i can't remember is but i'm just always going to remember her name is poo <sighs> tell me the story about that yeah so um so the physical symbols have been great this this cross actually that i'm wearing now it is from the community of aden and hilda so as members um so i'm a, a coveted member of the community and uh and so this is quite a big wooden cross you know uh, that that, uh, that i wear whenever i go out in public um, I find it really helpful. I, I, I'm a minister, so I, I can wear a dog collar. I don't find them very comfortable. Mm. Um, but when I do, did wear a, when do wear one, it is amazing how people want to come up and have a chat. And some people are angry. Some people, you know, don't want to talk to you at all. Um, but having a cross is kind of a, you know, a, an open invitation to have a chat with you. And yeah. so, uh, so that certainly in here in Winston Green has been the case, and it's been great being able to, yeah, people having a chat, like cross, what does it mean, all that kind of stuff have been, and, and I intentionally ask about experiences rather than beliefs. Um, and uh, I agree with you. There are sometimes those thin moments. One of the things we do with our change makers, and which is our emerging leaders program, is take them away to Holy Island, the Holy Island of Lindensfarne, and it yeah, is a kind. Of a thin place for people to go to. So their final residential is there and they walk barefoot, uh, low tide across the Pilgrim posts. And um, it's amazing experience. People have had healing experiences. People have felt like God's asked them to forgive people, hearing audible voices, all kinds of mystical experiences. I, I don't think God's more present on Holy Island than anywhere else, 
But I just think you've become a bit more awake and aware to it. You've kind of prepared for it. You you see it. And, and once you've experienced it, actually, you come back to a place like Winston Green and you realise the holy ground is here as well. Yes. And because you've experienced, you can recognise it. And because you've recognised it, you can see it in other places. Um, and so sometimes physical things can help help open up uh, discussions and, and awareness. That's great. That's great. So how was it then when you were... Because, 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 what you were talking about with um with your neighbour, and that what you you were drawing out what I call a commonwealth, a common skill. Um, yeah. I mean, I, I, I'm a graphic designer, so that's part of my, that's one of my common commonwealth skills. So I can go out and do business, and yet I don't really, I, I, for some bizarre reason, and I need to think about this is is blending. So Sally was talking about kin, the kingdom of God is kinship, and and. and what you were doing was creating a kinship with your neighbor with 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 that lady who, who was cooking yeah how how was how did that look like then when she realized did she you know our classic evangelicals would say then did she become a christian and then did she do the prayer and go on an alpha course and all those ridiculous things or, or actually nothing happened like that you just loved them Oh, we, we did just love her. And um, in Thailand, I, I mean, you probably know people speak Thai, but it's a really difficult language. And uh, and it's more than just the language, though. It's a kind of a worldview mm. that has never been touched by colonisation or um, in the same way, say, other languages have. And so just sharing faith was a massive challenge. John 3.16 made no sense to someone like Pooh, that just the categories were not there. Praja was the word for God. Um, it can, uh, if people hear it in the street, they think you're probably thinking about the, the, king, of Thailand, the king of Thailand. Oh. Um, love is Dhaka, which is a, a kind of a, um, a desire. So it, it causes suffering. It's like the world, the world's an illusion. God's love the world, he gave his only son to die. So a king causing suffering in an illusionary world murders his own heir, son. And so uh, so the that's not what we meant by those words, but that was the understanding. Communication is not what's said, it's what's understood. So for someone like Pooh, the way we approached it, and also most of our neighbours actually, uh, the words were not going to be that helpful initially. Yeah. It was people really did need an encounter. People needed to know that Jesus was not, as a person, was not far away from any one of them, and that uh, and that, that that they could reach out to God, and God would would, would grab hold of them and, and use them for for uh, for good. And so, uh, Sapu was one of those people who had real encounters with God. You could never manufacture something like that. I mean, you wouldn't want to manufacture something like that. Uh, but those encounters became quite common. People having dreams of what was um, what what was what, what God was doing became an, a normal way for people to enter into the story. Because once you enter in, then you you can do some of the harder work around what it means to follow Jesus. And then the question and pray and learning how to pray and all kinds of prayers. Hmm. Um, but then there's also the question of identity. Where do I belong? Who do I identify with? Um, so faith was very real. But how you identify as a Christian? You know, I mean, did Jesus identify himself as a Christian? You know? Yeah, I get that. I get that. I get that. I love that. I mean, it's, it, I mean what, what you're talking about is essentially you can't separate daily life 
and spirituality, but it but essentially um, our spirituality influences our daily life. But our daily life is not necessarily uh, uh, about the cumulative of what we have, what we've got in terms of stuff, but what we've yeah. been but what we've been given from our commonwealth. Yeah, I love that. I love that. I love that. So, Ash, look, thank you so much for this. I, I really appreciate just spending Pleasure. some time. And if, if people, I presume, again, seed beds, if they wanted to get hold of you, et cetera, what's the yeah. best way to get hold of you? Yeah, yeah, seedbeds.org has all our contact details and uh, what we're doing. Um, and, yeah, ash.barker at seedbeds.org is the email. Perfect. Thank you so much. Listen, Sonia, mate, thank you. Well, I just want to say thank you for joining us on today's episode and a few things. Uh, if you want to follow us on Twitter, we are, have this handle or profile name of Seasoned for Life and uh, all latest news about the podcasts and guests uh, are on there. And spread the news, tell people about this. Um, do uh, put reviews um, through your various different things if you're listening to us through uh, um, Android or Spotify or on iTunes or whatever your place, do leave a review, do tell people about it. And um, well, do you know what? It is incredibly encouraging. So thanks again. God bless you. And uh, we'll see you next time.